Hello, I'm Mike of IndependenceLive.net. The following is an edited recording of the launch event for a new report titled Making the Case for a Universal Basic Income, published by the Buchanan Institute. This event was held on the 26th of January 2017 at the University of Edinburgh's Appleton Tower. Speakers in order of appearance. Jamie Cook, head of the think tank the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Scotland, otherwise known as RSA Scotland. Johnny Ross Tatum, researcher for the Buchanan Institute and author of the report, Making the Case for a Universal Basic Income. And Matt Kerr, Scottish Labour Party councillor for Crichton Ward in Glasgow, an executive member for Social Justice Glasgow City Council. For a link to the report and more information about the speakers, please see the event's webpage at www.independencelive.net. The following audio was recorded and produced by Mike Edwards. This work is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. Um, yes, my name's Jamie Cook. I'm the head of RSA Scotland and it is very much my delight and privilege to be able to be here tonight. It's fantastic to see uh, a report like this being launched and I don't think you can over-exaggerate the contribution that the Buchanan Institute is making and I think will go on to make an ever greater uh, capacity to political and social policy debate in Scotland and I think that's hugely to be welcomed. We do have a situation in Scotland for many different reasons where at points the level of political discourse between different parties can sometimes seem stilted or confrontational and I think there's an important role for all of us within civic society to contribute to that debate, to strengthen it, to broaden it and actually to be innovative in how we approach that. So I think the role that Buchanan can play working with organisations like the RSA and others uh, I I think is absolutely crucial so it's brilliant to be here and I really look forward to seeing where this this goes. And there's uh, many other things that we're looking to work with Buchanan on, the uh, the conference that's coming up in February as well around sustainable innovation. So I think this is hopefully the the beginning of a very uh, fruitful uh, collaboration between us. Uh, The RSA is the Royal Society for the Encouragement of the Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce, which is a wonderfully long-winded way of seeing an organisation that is interested in people, in ideas and actually having an impact uh, on the world around us. And from our very beginning, we've been an organisation focused on that social impact, on how can we make a change, how can we bring society together to have a, a, a real impact on those around us. And we've seen that in many different ways over our history. I think for us at the RSA... Basic income is a concept that very much is of attraction and of interest in the world we see ourselves in today. Guy Standing, who's a world leader in in the field and who'll be back in Scotland again at the weekend, actually, uh, uh, contributing to this debate, talked about in his book The Precariat when he talked around the concept of a new social class, this growing idea of the precariat, a, a group in society who live precarious, insecure lives. He talked about the fact that if this group wasn't supported, if we didn't address the challenges we face in our economy, in our social structures, then we could see the growth of what he called a political monster. Now, he was lambasted at the time at this idea that in some sort of established democracy, we could see some crazy figure take power that was considered completely impossible to to do so. I think as we've seen uh, some of the changes uh, across the world, uh, we can see that that's not such a strange suggestion anymore. And I think when we see the the worrying rise of the far right in various parts, when we see the disconnect that people feel from the decisions made for and about them, then we need to start to address this. And for me, 
basic income is not a panacea. It's not the answer to every problem that we will face, but it certainly asks the right questions. It asks the questions we need to address, and I think it starts to offer us the building block, the foundation stone, on which we can build out changes within society that can have a, a very real impact in addressing that insecurity and instability that people face in their lives. So for me, I think tonight is a fantastic opportunity to hear about the work that's been undertaken. Uh, I'm delighted that it built out of work that we undertook at the RSA with a report published by my colleague Anthony Painter at the beginning of last year, but very much starts to develop out some of the ideas within it. <clears throat> and I think that is a crucial next step, and I hope people here tonight will be able to contribute to that debate. How do we pull apart this kind of policy to look at its impact, not just from an economic sense, but actually on the creation of new businesses, on the idea of its impact potentially on the environment, on social conditions, on families. Uh, there was an interesting piece of research that suggested where basic income has been tried uh, in one of the pilots in Canada, there was an increase in the divorce rate. Now, I'm not suggesting that's necessarily the uh, campaign slogan we would want to go with. However, when you start to pull that apart and look at whether that is in relation to people who had perhaps previously been trapped in unhappy or, or abusive relationships and were trapped there because of their lack of money, does this start to actually empower aspects and parts of communities and society that haven't been empowered previously? So I think this is a really exciting time. I'm delighted that Scotland is very much at the, the forefront of this debate just now. It's fantastic to see efforts being made by Matt and colleagues in Glasgow and also uh, by councillors and, and council officials in Fife, but also elsewhere where there's a lot of, of interest in this topic. Scotland was recently added to the, the list of places to watch uh, for international basic income discussions, and I think that's a very exciting place for us to be in. So I very much hope that all of you will find a lot of interest tonight, that it will kickstart debates for you all and that you'll very much look to contribute. Whether you agree with the policy or not, I think actually we need some of the disagreement to, to come forward to strengthen the arguments that we're having. But I think here at the university, you have a fantastic opportunity to contribute into an organisation that's doing that, and we very much look forward to working with uh, the Buchanan Institute moving forward. So thank you very much for coming along tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jamie. And uh, thank you very much, all, all of you, for being here. It's great to see so many people here. I mean, when we first started organising this event, only about two weeks ago, we were thinking, oh, it'd be great if we could get maybe 15, 20 people, all the organisers, bring your friends, so it looks like you know, there's actually people here and they're interested. Um, but it turns out we didn't even need that. I mean, it's great to see so many of you here, but also there were over 140 tickets sold on Eventbrite. Of course, not everybody turns up. It's cold. It's, people are hungry, etc. But um, it's clearly a lot of interest in this idea. And Scotland, as Jamie said, is one of the places to be if you're thinking about and acting on a universal basic income at the moment. So as, uh, as Priyanka said, we, we started this work at the Buchanan Institute about two years ago. Um, and it's been a slow burner, you could say. Uh, it's taken a lot of work coming back and forth at it. And the reason why we did that was because we wanted to play a part in building a social security system that gives everybody a secure financial foundation to make the best of their lives. And we wanted a system that gives people the simplicity and security they need to respond to the many opportunities and challenges that people will face 
in the 21st century economy that's often flexible, insecure, and uncertain for many people. But across the world, a growing coalition of politicians, policymakers, and local leaders of all political opinions don't think that this is the case with the current system. Right now, if you're on a low income and you move into work or increase your hours and earnings, you sometimes face losing up to 83p for every pound, extra pound you earn through lost benefits. Some lone parents face up to losing 96p for every pound you earn. I mean, you don't need me to do the maths. I'm sure you're all very clever people, but that's an extra 4p per extra pound earning, which isn't, isn't great. Millions of working men and women are finding themselves regularly moving in and out of work in our economy, and they face constant bureaucratic hurdles. Let's say you're in a position that, let's, let's say you're in that position and you get work. You then lose your unemployment benefit and have to reapply for a different benefit, tax credits. And then if your hours change week to week, you then have to reapply for a different level of tax credits and wait for that, and wait for that to come in, sometimes waiting weeks for the money to come through, by which time you might have lost your job or your circumstances and might have changed anyway. The time spent waiting for your benefits have serious consequences. The Trust found that benefit delays were the biggest cause of the, increase, the increases that we've seen in food bank use across the UK. The growing numbers of self-employed men and women, now nearly 20% of the workforce, also face this bureaucratic maze. So let's say you're a self-employed carpenter who is looking for work and takes a job that lasts for a few weeks, but no more. You are left with the choice then of either telling the Department of Work and Pensions about your new job, losing that benefit and reapplying whilst you wait for another, and at the same time losing a sizable chunk of the extra money you earn, or not telling the government and committing benefit fraud. Entrepreneurs working on their startup business or people taking time out of work to retrain and upskill for new jobs often risk having the, to take the first job that the government gives them or face crippling benefit sanctions. This is the same situation that you would face also if you're a voluntary carer looking after friends and relatives, unless you're caring for over 35, week, 35 hours in a week. So there's no specific support for voluntary carers for anyone caring from zero to 34 hours. At the launch of uh, the RSA's basic income report, which Jamie talked about, which I definitely recommend you all have a look at, and, and what our work was based on, the lead author there, Anthony Painter, told the story of two women who were training to become nurses, who were then told to take the first job given to them or face benefit sanctions. They had to take that job and cease their nursing training. That's not good for them as individuals. It's not good for our country. We need nurses and skilled workers. So why now are people of all political sides and colours saying our social security system isn't working? Our economy is changing and has changed drastically since much of the current welfare state was designed during World War II. Full employment and jobs for life back then are being replaced by a rise in flexible, short-term, part-time and often insecure work, sometimes called the gig or Uber or Deliveroo economy, however you want to call it. That's not to forget the, the rapid impact of, of the impact of rapid technological change, which 
in 10, 20, 30 years may mean that many robots take our jobs anyway. But it doesn't have to be all doom and gloom. What if we had a system that was fit for the 21st century economy? One that properly supported entrepreneurs in taking risks, that supported people taking time out of work to retrain and boost their skills, and supported voluntary carers looking to care for friends and relatives, increasingly important in an ageing society. And what if we had a system where low-income workers and the self-employed never needed to contact the government when they got a job or their income changed? A system that gives people a guaranteed safety net that they know will always be there for hard times and leaves people to get on with their lives. And it's a system that always rewards work, meaning that people are able to keep more of the extra money they earn than they do currently. So a growing coalition of people across the world, politicians, policymakers and leaders, are getting behind something called a universal basic income. Now, like many of you, when I first heard of this, I wasn't convinced. I thought, you know, seriously, giving everybody an equal basic income? That sounds crazy. And then a year later or so, after keep looking at it and looking at it again, I, I kept coming back to this idea after looking at the problems and saying, actually, this is something that could work. And governments in Finland, Netherlands and Canada, across the world, are trialling this idea. It's already been trialled in Namibia and India with, with great success. And as Matt is here today and we're welcoming him, this is something that may or may not be being looked at in Fife and Glasgow Council. So Scotland is another place that's seeing basic income as a potential solution to these problems. So it's a simple idea. Every individual... Everyone in this room, regardless of financial circumstances, and obviously outside the room, regardless of financial circumstances, receives a regular cash payment from the government, weekly or monthly, depending on their choice. It's just like the basic state pension or the universal child benefit, but for all adults. It's a basic, not a maximum income. So it's a floor, not a ceiling. People can earn whatever they like on top. And as a basic income is not taken away when earnings change, it rewards work because people are always better off the more they earn. With a basic income, people are guaranteed income security and then left alone to make the best of their lives as they see fit. The, the interesting thing about basic income at the moment is it's getting support from people across the political spectrum, from left, right, centre-right, centre-left. We've got Matt here, who's a Labour councillor, We've got lots of support amongst the Scottish National Party. We've got support amongst the Greens. And also there are conservative politicians, both councillors locally in places like Fife and Glasgow, but also MSPs who are showing a lot of positive interest in the idea. One such conservative MSP called Adam Tompkins said that a basic income would help people dare to dream to set up their own business. So it's something that has always had support from across the political spectrum and has continued to do so. And that's the context that the Buchanan Institute have launched our proposal for universal basic income. That is not, oh, that's not supposed to happen. There you go. There you go. And in our report, we said that it would support entrepreneurs in taking risks and setting up businesses. There's a whole host of evidence that shows that when people have income security, they're more likely to take that risk of setting up a business. So that period when you're 
working on your business and you're not receiving an income, that's a period where basic income can provide you with the financial support you need to put food on your table, to get a roof, to have a roof over your head, so that you can work on your business before you start bringing in money. It helps people retrain and upskill in a changing economy where automation and robots and technological change are constantly changing the necessary jobs that, we, that are available to us. And we're going to need people to be constantly retraining and reskilling re for new jobs. And it provides those millions of pe working people, particularly on low incomes, who are constantly moving in and out of work with that guaranteed income security. They, ne they never have to go to the government or the Department of Welfare and Pen Work and Pensions to tell them what they're how many hours they're working or tell them if they've got a new job. That income is there. It's never taken away. And it's that guaranteed security blanket that you need when you're moving in and out of work and trying to increase your earnings and your, your living standards. It always a really important part of basic income to remember because a lot of people say basic income, you're giving people money to do nothing, it's going to stop people working. I'll get, we'll get onto that in detail more later, but the fact is a basic income will always reward work. It is the best system out there in our opinion, that actually allows people to keep more of the extra money they earn, which is a great, not just a great incentive, but a reward, reward for working. So here we've got the, a table from the RSA's report on basic income. And what, what it shows is the marginal deduction rate that low-income workers face. Now, excuse for the jargon, but basically marginal deduction rate is the amount of money that is taken away from, from you every extra pound you earn. So as you can see, the current system is the blue line. The RSA, the orange line is the RSA's report, and our report is based on theirs, so ours will be very similar. So if you're earning, if you see you're earning between roughly 5,000 and 40,000 pounds a year, you're losing over 70% 70, 70 of every pound you earn from lost benefits and paying tax. With a basic income, because you've got this income and you never, it never gets taken away, when you increase your hours and your, your income, workers across pretty much across the whole spectrum, only, only, only a few, only if you're earning above between £120,000 and £150,000 does that change, but pretty much all working people will be able to keep more of the extra money that they earn, which whatever side of the political spectrum you're on has to be, has to be a good thing. So what does our proposal look like? Um, this, this, is the, this is exactly how much it would be. So a universal basic income isn't just a payment to adults. It also comes in as a payment to children and as a payment to pensioners as well. So as you see, first the first child that you have between zero and four years old, you would receive, the parents would receive, 73 pounds, 83 pence as a kind of child benefit. That decreases to £65.13 pence a week for all additional children. And this is paid to all additional children. It's never cut off how many, how many children you have. So if you have four children or two children, you'll still receive that child benefit. You'll, get, you'll receive a child benefit of £56.25 pounds a week for five to 15-year-olds. And as you can see, nearly £3,000 a year. And for 16 and 17-year-olds, that will be the same, 
but you will also receive that if you're that individual, that 16 to 17 year old will receive that income if they're in work and education. So the, the dominant one is for the adults. So most people in this room are between 18 and 64. You would receive 71 pounds a week, which is the same as the job seekers allowance, the unemployment benefit. That comes up to 3,692 pounds a year. And for those over 65, you will receive 142 pounds 70, which is 7,420 pounds a year. So those, those are the figures. What is specifically a specific benefit about our basic income proposal and also the Royal Society of Arts is that it makes low-income earners with young children better off. So as you can see, the final column is the gains that you would receive from the Buchanan Institute's basic income scheme. And all low-income, low-earning, low-to-middle-earning parents with children are gaining significantly particularly if you're a couple with two children, uh, both over five, one working full-time, one working part-time. You're, you're gaining over £8,000. Even for a single parent whose child is over five and working part-time, you're not gaining as much, but you're still gaining £610. So low-income low earners with children, particularly young children, are better off. question you all want to ask is, this idea sounds great, uh, I want to get behind it, but it costs loads of money, doesn't it? There is a cost involved, of course, but after calculating the savings you would make from the replacing the means-tested benefits that you would no longer need and, and replacing those with the basic income, excluding housing benefit and disability benefits, so there will be some means-tested benefits, housing and disability, but most of the means-tested benefits will be replaced, we're looking at an extra cost a year of 14.1 billion to 19 billion pounds. That's a little bit more than the RSA scheme, only because we are, or mainly because we're paying that same adult rate for 18 to 25 year olds. Whereas there's a debate over should 18 to 25 year olds be paid the same as those over 25? We say yes, and um, it's a good discussion that we've been having um, and we've been able to contribute to. So 19 billion sounds quite a lot, but actually if you look at, the, look at it in context of the recent choices that the government has been making, particularly in the, the last government during a time of austerity when there's <coughs> supposed to be not much money left, if you look at these three choices that the last government made in tax cuts, they equal over 19 billion pounds. So you've got raising the personal allowance, reducing corporation tax, and reducing fuel duty, all of which comes to over £19 billion a year. So the extra, even at the most pessimistic, the extra that we're asking for, for a universal basic income and all the benefits that it brings, is still within the kind of choices that governments, the last government was making, even during a time of austerity. So the idea that it's unaffordable isn't true, it's whether or not you have the necessary political will. I think we'll get, to we'll get to questions right at the end. Why is it the UK government talking about college universal income? Like, so yeah, this is, uh, I think, yeah, this is, this is just referring to the, the United Kingdom government. Um, I haven't got the figures for the Scottish government. 
But for the UK government, these are the choices that they've been making. It's roughly similar to the kind of choices they would need to make if they're paying for a basic income. So that is our proposal in brief. We have la we're launching it right now on Twitter and social media and online. So if you want to read a copy, you can find it on the Buchanan Institute's website. Also, if you want to ask, you can ask. We're going to have about 10 minutes for questions for, for myself about this proposal now. But if you want to ask us questions at any other point, you can email basicincome.buchanan at gmail.com. Or alternatively, you can go on the website and you can find lots of different contacts, uh, uh, possibilities of contacting us there. And you can find the email address up there if you can't write it down now. Um, should we have, we have questions? Thank you very much, everybody. Um, can, you, can you turn that on there? Just, just to answer the gentleman's question up there, actually, you made a good point, and I was about to say it, and I, f I forgot to say it in the end, which you reminded me, um, was that part of, what we're, part of what we're aiming to do is to influence, yeah, influence the UK government, but that's obviously hard. More realistic for us, and for all of us in this room, is to influence uh, Scotland at a local level, but particularly the pilot projects for basic income that might take place in Fife and Glasgow. So if these basic income tests that are going to take place in Scottish councils in the next year or so, then we, this is a potential contribution to that test and saying this is, this is some, th these are the income levels that you can test out on your, on your citizen to see if it works. So that's, that's something that we'll be working with the Scottish government on. And we've also, this proposal has been uh, sent, has been requested by the Social Security Committee um, in the Scottish Parliament, because the Scottish Parliament are doing an investigation on a universal basic income and the possibility of implementing it in Scotland, and they've requested our proposal. So we are, we are working, trying to work with Scot in the Scotland, Scottish context and with Scottish politicians and Scottish government, as well as looking for UK-wide as well. So yeah, open to questions. Well, firstly, I, I, I want to say this is, this is very, uh, very odd for me indeed. It's been a wee while since I've been at university. Um, and we, uh, a few, um, really it's only weeks ago, um, when I kind of committed in my own mind along this road. Um, certainly, I, I, I didn't uh, foresee the kind of reaction we've got uh, over the last wee while. Um, or, get, or, or having the contact from like, wonderful people uh, involved in this institute. I have to say, when I was at university, the idea of formulating policy um, uh, boiled down to um, either uh, going out in a protest, and, as, as was mentioned earlier on, or getting, uh, you know, having a very, very long night in a pub and forgetting about it the next morning, you know, and then starting all over again. Um, so I, I have to say, this is, this is quite impressive, but I, I, I hope you don't... Uh, you don't miss out on the other two. Um, I, I, I guess I, I, I want to, I've, been, I've been a little bit of a journey with, uh, with, uh, with this one myself. Um, I've been aware of the concept, I guess, since I was at university, and um, 
I always kind of written it off as, you know, this is pie in the sky, it could never be done, and all the rest of that. You'll, you'll hear all this um, as, as it goes out into the public domain more and the discussion goes on, and these will always be the things. It's utopian, it's nonsense. Um, and uh, to some extent, I was taken in by that. It costs too much, too, too awkward. Yeah, what, what if people don't work? You know, the economy will collapse, you know, and the, the roads will never get the potholes filled in. And as a councillor, that's a big deal, I'll tell you. Um, you know, who picks up the, the dog poo and, you know, who builds the houses? And all, it, it, the world falls apart. But what's brought me to this place is, um, I guess, is, I guess, uh, where we are now with welfare reform. It, made, it forced me to rethink some of that. I guess when I, when I started kind of my grounding and kind of my political understanding, not necessarily the party politics, actually, that's a little bit more complicated in my background, but my political understanding has grown largely from my grandparents, um, which is not an unusual thing in the West Coast of Scotland. Um, I, uh, my, my grandfather uh, uh, worked as a blacksmith in, the, in the Cardown Colliery. Um, my other grandfather was a, was a, was a, worked in the, worked in ICI in Nardir, was involved in the, in the workers' committee that effectively ran something, a, a, a town. There was an industrial complex of about 30,000 people. It's a world completely removed from where we are now. And towards the end of my, 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 my granddad's life, um, I, he became more and more frail. And... I was really taken by something, um, and you know, it hasn't really kind of left me. That one of the, he started to lose his memory. He started to get a little bit confused, and one of the last things that he kind of forgot was that the anarchists amongst you won't like this very much, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. He could remember his national insurance number right up till very late. And it, he was terribly proud of that. He was terribly proud. He could remember when, when, the moment when he started doing that, started paying into that scheme. And he was really proud. He, took, he did genuinely take a pride in what he thought was his kind of generation's gift to the next. And, I, and that kind of, in terms of what I did later in, in getting involved in politics and trade unions and all the rest of that, kind of is, is, what, is what weighed upon me. And what weighs upon many people, I guess, involved in politics, to be quite honest, is lots of stories like that in politics. Lots of my fellow politicians of all sorts of parties have that sort of story. And it motivates you and it, and it interests you and, and, and it, you know, I, I guess, bits of spur you on, but also can cause a kind of level of defensiveness. I remember... Um, I, I was joking with Jamie there whether I'll go into a quote from Marx or not. But I, what, there's, a, there's a quote, there's a Marx quote, I think it's, somebody will probably correct me if I've got it wrong. Um, 80, 83rd Brumier, I think it was. Um, he, he said, uh, the, the um, traditions of all dead generations weigh, upon, um, weigh, weigh like a nightmare on the brains of the living. And it kind of did for me. I've spent, uh, I've been a councillor now coming up in 10 years. I've spent a, what feels like a huge chunk of that time involved with people in, across parties and outside of, uh, of mainstream politics and outside of elected politics fighting against what I think are grossly unjust welfare reforms, um, which are leading um, to people um, I care about, uh, people uh, in, my, in my ward, people in, in generally in the country, um, 
some, some of whom are working, some of whom aren't working, um, having to queue up to get fed. And if that's, you know, we, we hear this all the time in the news now, in food banks, it's all getting normalised. And if, it start, if the shock is starting to go, then there's something wrong. It is absolutely, totally unacceptable that in the 21st century, uh, with, the, with the riches we have, that, that there are people in our society who can't feed themselves or aren't allowed to feed themselves is probably a more accurate way of putting it. The economic system we, we exist under doesn't facilitate that. And it is appalling. And I remember at the launch of the, of the um, Citizens' Income uh, Network in Govan. Uh, Govan's, I was a postman in Govan for, for a decade. <laughs> I know it very well, and I lived in it. And um, Govan's a place that, um, that it means a lot to me, but it also is a place, unfortunately, synonymous with poverty. Uh, and some of that's unfair. Um, but an awful lot of it's true. And within yards of, the, of where we had that meeting in the Pierce Institute, I know there were people uh, along that street were hungry. I know there's people along that street who also were organising to, to, to do the food banks and do toy banks and what have you. Pe good people doing good things. But I don't accept that uh, well-being should be reliant on charity. Good as that is, we, we had, uh, there's a, a woman speaking earlier on from Homestar. I, I think that's excellent that the, the people... Are, are involved in such things and they're involved in volunteering and all this. But, but the f absolute bare fundamentals of what gets you through your life shouldn't be reliant on, on, on mere goodwill. I think that should be about the extra. And I think that's where we've got. So years into this, I've, I found myself kind of from a Glasgow point of view, first as the convener of social care and then now a slightly different remit in social justice, finding myself responding to the various bits of welfare reform writing the draft reports, consultation responses, all that kind of stuff. And I realised, um, well, firstly, um, that we're not going to listen to, I guess, is obviously the frustration to some extent, but also um, that actually what I was doing was defending a system that didn't work in the first place. You know, it's easy to say that the, the, wel the welfare system's appalling now and it's been ripped apart, and, and all of that's true. But it was actually pretty terrible to start with. And every government, whether I particularly like that government or not over the years, have come in and said they're going to simplify the system, they're going to iron out these, these issues about you know, people, those marginal rates moving from uh, work, moving from worklessness out, or out, of, out of work into work and all the rest of that. And there's been great attempts made, in, in, in fairness, um, things like tax credits, as complex and messy as a system as it is, and I tried to navigate it a few years ago myself. Um, I had to try, anyway. Um, it was a genuine attempt to try and iron out that, that problem. But ultimately, it didn't, really, it didn't really get where we needed to be. The system we've had has been tinkered about so much over the last... Since, certainly since the war, I think we, of course it existed before it, but it's been, but it's been tinkered about tinkered about by successive governments of different hues and different inclinations, and we've never really dealt with the problem. We still live in a chronically unequal society. Of course, inequality has been growing, and we've never really got to, the grip, got to grips with tackling those giants that we were supposed to tackle uh, after the war. That's not, that's not to say there's been a lack of will um, uh, to do it. But I think what's happened, particularly I have to say on the left, um, and myself in that, 
uh, include myself in this. We've become wedded to a system and trying to defend a system that, that as I say, uh, does not work. I think we have to think completely differently. And thinking, and I, again, I, I, I grew up uh, understanding, as, a, as actually as a core belief, that full employment is where it was at and what it should be the aim of all governments. Um, and, and, uh, and in a sense, I've not really given up on that yet. But you can't build a welfare system, you can't build a system that's supposed to uh, support all the people in that way. Because even in times when the economy's been moving well, you know, that's not been achieved. And what you'd call full employment is neither, you know, we could debate about that all day, but I'm sure people in this building do. Um, I think it's become a bit of a false discussion. And we forget that the, the, the point that was made about voluntary carers. Take a wee bit of issue with the other, John. <laughs> the, the, um, the voluntary carers you're talking about, not many of them are doing it voluntarily. That's actually the real tragedy of this. And it's not because they wouldn't rather be looking after their granny or their grandpa or their brother or their sister or their mother or their father, whoever it may be, daughter or son. But they don't have a choice in the matter. They're forced into it, effectively, by under, underfunded social care systems, uh, under, under, you know, rant about that, that's a whole different subject all day, but, uh, but they're forced into it uh, effectively. And what they're, what they're told then is that if you commit to doing this for 35 hours a week, we'll give you the square root of sod all to live on. And that's not acceptable. I, th I think the last time I looked it was at 60 pounds if you do 35 hours of caring a week. So if you've, potentially you've given, you've given up a job to live on that as well as actually going through the stress, the heartache that quite often comes with being a carer. And that doesn't feel right to me. It's not voluntary. And it's not actually looking after people. I remember actually thinking back when, when I was at university and um, at my, my, my professor at the time was a guy called Ronan Patterson and we were uh, doing political geography. And he... Um, and he said, what's the core function of the state? And he said, it's, he started off with security. And when people think of that first, they start to think of armies and borders, maybe not so much walls, although that's getting in, getting in fashion at the moment. They, but that's where people start to think. And if you look at the growth of the state, there's an element of that, it's true. It shouldn't be true now. You know, what, what security means to more, what should, what I think it should mean in society or what a government should be striving for is actually a happy country, a, people where, a, a place where people don't have to worry about uh, whether they have somewhere to sleep the next night, whether they don't have to worry about whether or not they can eat the following week, or, or don't, and don't have to be humiliated into asking people to help them do it. And that's a really important part for me. Really, one of the key things for that, one of the things that got me over the line, if you like, on this, um, was, was seeing the humiliation, the degradation that people... Um, are being put through in the system now. Um, particularly young people, it has to be said. Uh, interesting what you think here. In Glasgow, um, we, you know, we've been, we've been obviously, the same in other authorities too, I'm sure. You support, so you have welfare rights officers that try and support people through the appeals process in the welfare system to try and get back the money they should have got in the first place because the system made the wrong decision and all the rest of that. And the, the, it's overwhelmingly the case that when they have somebody there, there next to them who knows the system, they win the appeal. Now, that tells you, that, firstly, the decision was appalling in the, in the first instance. 
But one of, the, one of the real tragedies of that is young people aren't appealing. Because they don't believe it's worth it. They don't believe that the system is there to support them. It is actually kind of alienation crystallized. Young people, the next generation of this country, are being told that the state, that society, doesn't give a damn. That is an absolutely appalling indictment on us, collectively. Absolutely appalling. And it's, it really, that, that, that is something for me that, that is inexcusable. A generation of people potentially growing up not knowing, not, not effectively being told by the system there is no point in fighting, no point in trying to change anything. Just, you know, if they take the money off you, well, you know, just find a way of getting through it. That's not good enough. The potential of the basic income, there's a million different names for it, the potential of a basic income is that everybody's valued, straightforwardly. You're told you matter by the state. Your relationship to the state changes straightforwardly. You don't have to go there and, uh, and go through the process of having to ask to have enough to live on. You can have... That is a right. It's a right. It's a rights-based approach. I mean, wealth of rights officers, maybe amongst you, if there's any out there, will understand the difference. I guess. Um, it's the rights are the thing. At the moment, you're told you should be lucky to have this. You're lucky, lucky to have something to pay, to pay your rent or to get, you know, put shoes in your kids' feet. That's not it. That, that can't be acceptable. You should, these things should be as of, as of right. And, they are, and universal benefit is a universal benefit. Good grief. That's, that's certainly not the way of achieving it. Uh, we, we must be careful, actually, that in the terminology. I must remember that. Universal basic income is a methodology of doing that. It's, it fundamentally changes our relationship with each other, builds solidarity, has potential to build solidarity in communities. Values people who volunteer, and for people who are working who want to volunteer, maybe they'll t maybe they'll, they'll take the choice to make the decision to work a few hours less and do a wee bit more in the community if they have the chance. I can't see how that could be a bad thing. Is it the answer to all our ills? No, absolutely. Jamie uh, uh, has, has pointed it. I, I think it doesn't address inequality in of itself. It's part of the pitch, part of the solution. Um, you have to look at the tax system, you have to look at income tax, but actually, I think fundamentally, if we're going to address inequality, we actually have to look, about, uh, look at how assets are distributed in our society, because certainly throughout my lifetime, uh, there's been a massive concentration of asset wealth in fewer and fewer hands, and that has driven inequality, that's driven, driven that kind of broken housing market, uh, which, has driv which has driven uh, big increases in housing benefit bills as well. That has to be addressed, and that cannot be ignored. And whilst we can get excited about universal basic income, never said universal credit there. Uh, you can get excited about that for the other reasons. Um, we can't lose sight of the other things that need done. We can't lose sight of how we actually tackle the, the other inequalities. And equally, we can't lose sight of how we support people with disabilities, how we support people with additional needs in our communities. 
But all of these things start to become possible if we can, I think, if we can start getting this argument over the line. Because at the moment we're in a very strange place where collectively people aren't, sadly from my point of view, aren't voting um, to fund public services particularly, to be quite blunt. And I think this, this has a potential to move some of that on a little. So I'm, I'm approaching it from the left. There'll be other people who will approach this from the right and say, well, you, 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 you'll have had your income then, eh? I'm coming over from Glasgow, apparently you, you've had your tea over in Edinburgh, that's what they say. <laughs> um, they'll, 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 say to, they'll say to you, you've had, uh, you've had your basic income. You won't need your NHS. You won't need your social care and all that stuff. And we must be vigilant around that because there will be people in the libertarian right who will, who will take that view. So to support this, yes, we can work with people across the political spectrum to get this thing over the line. But we must not, in my view, from where I'm approaching this politically, we cannot sacrifice the rest. This is in addition and allied with other parts of a, of a system which actually supports our, our human beings and treats them like human beings and gives them the dignity they deserve. Thank you. For a link to the report and more information about the speakers, please see the webpage for this event at www.independencelive.net. Also, contact Johnny Ross Tatham on Twitter at J R O S S T A T A M. This audio production was recorded and produced by Mike Edwards. This work is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again soon. of citizen live stream journalists. People like you are us. We live stream important events which the mainstream media ignore. Indie Life has live streamed over 700 events since November 2013. Most past events are available to view for free from our website. To continue to raise the quality of our coverage, expand outreach and develop much needed digital infrastructure, we need money. Please consider supporting the ongoing activity of Indie Life by making a donation at www.independencelife.net.